Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we are joined by Drew Capapianca. Drew is the founder of The Hub, which is in Brant Lake, New York, which is located in the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York. And The Hub is a combination bike shop and restaurant and a place where you can actually, they actually have trails where you can ride your bike. So it's really kind of an interesting concept that was developed by Drew as part of his vision to create a bike-centered ecosystem in this part of the Adirondacks. He also hosts live music, and it's a big part of his business model, as you will hear as we chat about the business. Uh, And we also talked a little bit about the challenges of COVID and that he's in a very seasonal business and how he plans and reacts to that as well. Great, Bela. So let's get to it. Let's give it a listen. Hello, folks. Today, I'm here with Drew Campobianca, and uh, he's my guest for today's show. And uh, I'm pretty sure I butchered his last name. But uh, as most of you listeners know, I have a real problem with names. It's one of those impediments I have. I blame it on English being a second language, but I don't think uh, that's a valid uh, statement uh, or reason for me to have that impediment, but I do. And uh, so Drew has a really interesting business. Uh, He runs something uh, called the Adirondack Hub or the Hub Adirondack. Here again, I get dyslexic about those things. Uh, But it's a real sort of interesting combination of of a business. And uh, it's his brainchild. And uh, so that's one of the things we're going to talk about. So welcome to the show, Drew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So here's my first question. Uh, If you're at a social event and you meet someone for the first time, and they ask you, hey, Drew, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Um, I've heard that question on your podcast all spring listening to them, and I've had time to think about this, and it's still a hard question to answer. To oversimplify it and make it socially you know, not awkward, um, I own The Hub. It's a, a bike shop, cafe, and bar. Okay, Ooh. well, that's, that's pretty descriptive. I mean, most people know what those things are. <clears throat> Maybe not in that combination. So can you describe it for us a little bit as to sort of what, what the hub is? Yeah. So it's essentially like a, a, like a uh, ski lodge or a golf clubhouse, but for cycling, for bike riding. Um, and that's conceptually how it started. If you look at those other activities like golf, skiing, and what the, what the venue that you go do it as is, what is it? It's, there's a place to park, you know, meet, change, warm up, cool down, get something to eat or drink, technical services for whatever, uh, and retail services for whatever activity you're doing, whether it be skiing or golf, you know, ski shop, pro shop. <clears throat> um, but for cycling, that doesn't exist. Um, and for the most part, it doesn't have to. So like what we do, you know, the restaurant, <clears throat> bike shop, um, and we'll get into some of the other things that have started since then. Um, most places are relatively populated. So like, you know, I'm from Glens Falls in which there's like a couple of bike shops and a couple of coffee shops and a bunch of restaurants and bars. And they're all, especially if you're on a bike, you know, just mere minutes or seconds from each other. So the, 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 the bundling isn't necessary. All those things exist on their own, but up here in the Adirondacks, it gets, the population gets very sparse. Um, and there's not another like restaurant like ours in the town of Horkin that we're in. <clears throat> there's some deli style places. Um, or general store style places, but there's no place to go get like a beer and a sandwich and hang out. Right. Um, And then the other thing too is like, we have a lot of, it started with just road cycling 
Um, what's interesting about the Adirondack Park is we're in the, the so more southern part of the park where there are lots of secondary roads still. Um, you, and these roads are actually incredibly well maintained. Um, a lot of them are paved or even if they're dirt, they're very well maintained and the riding's spectacular, um, but no one really knew about it. <clears throat> and then if you go too much further north from here, you run into huge tracks of state land so that your ride can be like 10 or 12 miles long or 70 miles long. And there's just nothing in between. But in this one particular location that we found, um, you know, we're along lakes and rivers. So that's as flat as the Adirondacks get, you know, the roads. We're, we're near some of the biggest climbs around here, too. Um, you know, climbs that are five or six miles long. Um, and there's also the rolling stuff in between. So you literally can pick just about any kind of ride you want to do from, you know, say 15 miles, 16 miles up to 50, 60, 70, 80 plus. Um, and there's, there's a riding style for you. Yeah, very nice. So, what was the what was the spark that made you think about opening a business like this? Um, I mean, I've always my dad had his own business, and I've always just kind of knew at some point I was going to be uh, my own business owner. Um, just growing up, even being as a teenager, I would like make mental notes of like what worked well, what didn't work well, whether it be at restaurants or retail at places that I worked. You know, the good examples and the horrible warnings. <laughs> you know, with the intention that at some point I would need to put this. Um, you know, this experience to, to work. Uh, but the thing that made me really kind of just veer off my previous career track was more of a traditional, just, uh, you know, bike shop owner. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things. One was just personally, I, I, at the beginning of the year, I decided to start this. I had no idea I'd be leaving my job in, my nine, in nine months. I, it looked very straight. And then uh, relationship with a boss just went complete 180. And it looked like that I was like okay so then there, and there was just no saving that at a certain point and i realized this so um and then so my my familiarity with the area starts from my great grandparents bought a place on a lake nearby um and when i was a kid there used to be this functioning like little hotel restaurant that was like really busy you know there's like parking issues on our access road because it was so busy and it suffered a very tragic accident back in the mid 90s in which they were working on the propane system and the place literally exploded. Um, and then there were several efforts to rebuild it. And it, it just never, it's been sitting vacant for like 25 years at this point. So when I was kind of, you know, seeing my current career track souring and just kind of daydreaming, I had this daydream to revive this lodge and have it be athlete and cycling based. But that was ultimately like millions of dollars outside of my scope. Like, I'm not afraid of a challenge, but I'm also not afraid to acknowledge when like, this is just, that's just too much. Um, and to make a long story short, I was on a mountain bike trip that same year, uh, you know, in the car for four or five hours with a friend and I was daydreaming about this idea I had and I was like, yeah, but that's just way too far. And the first thing out of his mouth, he goes, yeah, but there's gotta be a first step. He's like, plenty of people were in your position and got there, but they didn't jump. There's a step. And like, that's when it really started to open my mind. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And so what was that first step, Drew? Um, the hub basically, um, it started with me just daydreaming to my family about this idea. And then my dad told his friend about it on a bike ride and his friend happened to own the building that we're in now. Um, and it worked out really well because the, like it's this one particular location that has like that riding variety that I said, if we were at that original location, you're at a hill at either end, like anywhere you come, you're coming up a hill at the end, um, which doesn't provide that same experience, nor is there the variety of riding. And that's like, by the way, like, 15 minutes from here. It's like not far. It's just maybe, maybe 10 miles. Um, but this location was key and he and his business partner had bought the place back in 
you know, before 2008 with big plans and 10 years had gone by and there wasn't a tenant or any nibbles on selling the property. So they were in a position to um, try to make something happen. Yeah. Yeah. Now in this, in the hub at the, at the hub, you, you do bike rides, group rides, yep. Uh, yep. you service and repair bicycles. Correct. Uh, you, you provide some food and drink. Yep. Uh, and so there's a lot of different things you do there. That encompasses a lot of different skills, right? <laughs> it's not like you open just a restaurant and, you know, you have to have a chef and some food prep people, but you yep. have, you have this combination. So how do you, how do you deal with staffing and, and, you know, the skills necessary to run an operation like that? So the biggest thing when I was identifying this, um, the, the hardest skill set to satisfy is the bike shop. Mechanical, being a bike mechanic, there's no rear career track for that. Um, so I plan on me just being in the bike shop because it's, it's I just assumed it was going to be impossible to find bike, bike talent. Um, but the restaurant industry, there's a lot more available talent to hire for that. Um, I got crazy lucky and just stumbled across a guy locally. Um, it's a long story, but I had a bike mechanic the first year. He needed a little bit of uh, training for me more professional uh, training for me. And then I just, for five years in a row, six years in a row, I ended up with friends that were in the bike industry that were incredibly skilled bike mechanics going through some kind of life change that allowed them to go just play in Brant Lake and fix bikes and pour beers all summer. <laughs> like just, it's, it's like divine intervention type lucky. Wow. Wow. Yeah. The one guy, the problem with the best bike mechanics is they're usually destined for like an engineering degree. <laughs> And that's exactly what my one friend had done. He'd been working in small businesses his entire life and at 34 years old decided to go to study materials engineering at RPI. Yeah. <laughs> so he had summers off for a couple summers. But yeah. uh, this past year was the first time that the original model held. I held, I hired someone um, to run the kitchen, basically the front end, like they call it, and the, the, the restaurant side of things. And I just hold up in the bike shop um, fixing bikes all summer. And it was funny because it's six years in. That was the first time we actually had that model. Yeah. Uh, six years, my, my luck ran out, but that's fine. You know, that that was the model for a reason. So you've been at it six years, I take it then. Yeah, six full seasons. Yep. yep. And so describe your typical customer. That's, yeah, that's, that's really hard. Um, by nature, the hub is an incredibly welcoming place. I mean, this, the whole idea is to just kind of check out a reality you know, the reality that it is our phones and the outside world and our everyday lives and just kind of check in and be in the moment and hang out and meet people. And like, we don't have any TVs in here. Um, so because of that, we get so many walks of life, which is just incredible. You know, we also do live music at nights. And um, there was one night where you realize that like you have all these, you have all the second homeowners that own the real expensive properties on the lake. And they're like dancing with the guy that paints their house and fixes their plumbing. And it's like the whole spectrum, which is the coolest thing for me. Cause it's like, Hey, we're all here. We're all human. We're all just trying to hang out, listen to some music and enjoy ourselves. And it works. Yeah. Uh, which is why it's hard to say like our typical customer, <clears throat> but I had to summarize this for a branding effort I'm working on recently. And I realized that it's everyone that's just young at heart. I mean, I've seen 75 years olds tearing up the dance floor harder than the 25 year olds. You know, we, we don't get to a danceable uh, live thing too much, but it does happen. And it's like, no, that's, that's the thing. Like it's all how, how young you act. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I would say for the most part is people that are young at heart and it doesn't matter if you ride a bike, you know, the bike was just our shtick. That was the thing that, that was my experience. 
um, thing to set us apart, you know, turn heads. I figured the bike shop would be this very small part of the overall picture. And it actually is like, we do enough business. It justifies an entire full-time position all year, (laughs) which is just mind blowing to me. Cause I figured I'd be like doing, you know, a couple of repairs a year. Um, not not a year. So a couple of repairs a day, but it's like, it's, it was busy up until this year. And then this year it was off the charts, um, with the whole COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about the COVID in, in, in a little while, but one of the things that struck me as you were describing all the various things that go on there is that this sounds like it could be totally consuming for you, the owner, you could work this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yep. And, and so how do you manage that? How do you sort of manage balancing, you know, your family, work, and just your sanity? Uh, I'll let you know when I find out. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, for the first couple of years, no, it was just all consuming. Um, uh, and it had to be because up in the this part of the woods, like there's there's no, you can't just hire people to do stuff. Like if you have the ability to do it yourself you need to do it yourself. You need to save that money to work on something else just because it's a very, there's a very short tour season. It's very weather dependent. Um, <clears throat> but I'm realizing that part of being a small business owner is it's, it's saying no to things that you can do. And when you can't afford to pay someone else to do them, do them because you're essentially paying other people to get your life back. Right. You're trading uh, time for money. Yep. Correct. <clears throat> so it's changed over the first couple of years. I mean, the first couple of years were insane just to get this place, you know, it wasn't a restaurant. It was essentially an abandoned old town hall. So we had to jump through like all of the regulatory stuff with the health department and then putting in a new well and septic and filtration systems and all this crazy stuff. And to look back on it and realize that we turned like an empty building into a functioning restaurant in about 90 days is like insane. Yeah. (laughs) You know, in my mind, we were like, how do we do it? It's like, oh, we work till like one o'clock in the morning every day and we're back at like nine o'clock the next morning. (laughs) So, so when you were dreaming about this years ago, or, you know, in the car or wherever, and yeah. you, were, you were coming up with this concept for this thing, what, what has been the biggest surprise to you? Uh, that it worked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Here we are six years later. And it actually works. Yeah, yeah. And I say that jokingly because, like, I'm a really detail-oriented guy. You know, I th- think some people look at it because it's a fun place to be. And like, oh, cool. You're like... You know, you got like a restaurant, you, you know, you got some local beers on tap and some live music and that's cool. And everyone hangs out. It's just like well, we wouldn't have survived if there wasn't just like dozens and dozens of planning documents of like assuming different sales figures and assuming different margins. And what's the worst case scenario and where does this whole thing go bust? And where do we actually make money? Um, but still, after all that, I can't. It was a pretty crazy idea. And just the, the fact that it, and it what I really mean by the fact that it worked is the fact that it worked as well as it did. Yeah. Um, you know, we're still in the first couple of years and it's, if you were doing this for money, this is a failure, but if you're doing it to support yourself and have a really good quality of life and just have all these amazing experiences with like, we have the best customers. Like I've been working with the general public my entire life. And it's just like, our customers are like the best, coolest people ever. Yeah. That's now, great. I think part of that's cause we're in a vacation zone. They're all at their second home or their vacation rental for the week. So they're like, you know, on purpose laid back and carefree. Maybe if I, I was serving them at a bike shop on their lunch break and they were stressed out and rushed, they might not be the person that I get to see. Um, <clears throat> but that's not my problem. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess the biggest surprise is, and just how welcoming the community was, you know, when I was doing the, compa- like the analysis of the area, there was, um, you know, my experience is on the other side of the interstate in the same, you know, basically area. And to see that there's two lakes over there that are much smaller 
there's several businesses, restaurants, whatever, that have been around for 30 plus years and that are fine. And then you look on the other side of the highway between here and Lake George, you know, Hague, and like there's literally, at the time we started, there was nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, it's just Brant Lake's a bigger lake. I'm like, there's got to be enough people if you've got halfway decent food and beer to make it. Yeah. And so it's been true. Yeah. So is there, is there another embodiment of this someplace else? I mean, does, has someone else created something like this in, in the other part of the United States? Or as far as you know, is this sort of the only thing that has this kind of unique combination of elements? No, it's becoming more and more common. While I, in my experience, what they probably don't have, or like we have these really big music nights where we do like out, get a special uh, permit. We do outside stuff. And part of the really cool thing is seeing all these people reconnect because there's been no public place to connect with people for so long. Um, people that reconnect after 20, 30 years, like that aspect of it, the community aspect of it, um, probably not so much, but there are definitely like bike shop, restaurant combos, bike shop, cafe combos. Um, the most interesting thing to me is that part of the reason I left the traditional bike shop industry is because it was suffering. Um, I want my dad sold auto body supplies for a living. And it's like, it's funny because it reminded me of like the simple stuff they tell you in microeconomics, like firms will continue to enter a market until there's no profit to be had, then they leave. But they, they don't discuss the human element of that, which is everyone worked harder for less money until they give up. Right. That's right. <laughs> it's, awful. it's really awful. And I'm like, I know how this ends. I saw it in the auto body industry. Yeah. And with bike dealers, like the margins are just getting thinner and thinner and you have to work harder and you're making less money. And like, I was like, I'm out. So yeah. where I'm going with this is that, oh, there's a lot of bike shops that have added a food service component because it actually makes money. Like they're not doing it. Like, wouldn't it be cool if it's like, they're doing it because they have um, to, they have to you have to survive. It's the only, you know, it's, you take a slow moving, expensive seasonal widget you're trying to sell and move it into a like fast turning high margin widget that you're trying to sell. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so what's been the, if, if you were talking to someone who, who said, Hey, Drew, I want to build something like you have out in some other part of the, country so it's not competing to you what would yeah. be what would be the big advice you would give them um i actually had this happen i had a woman that was somewhere south of albany come up and talk to me about this and like where's your bicycle mechanical mechanic help going to come from like that's the biggest thing because if you don't have the talent in-house this isn't like any other industry in which you can just go hire people or there's a college you can work with like and this is another thing I, i'm trying to figure out a problem how to solve this problem is that there's no career track for bike mechanics. You don't say to your high school guidance counselor, I want to be a bike mechanic. Oh, okay. We'll look at these programs and, or this apprenticeship, or there's a union or a trade school. Like, no, it doesn't exist. Like there's most mechanics have my story, which is like, you're in high school, you get hired at the local shop. If you're lucky, they teach you how to do stuff or, you know, you just take the initiative and deal with getting yelled at when you did it wrong. Um, and then you just learn from that. Um, but there's no, you know, there's probably a lot of kids out there that want to get into something like this, but there's no, like, this is what you do. Right. And there are schools you can go to, but I mean, nothing just like welding or anything else. Like you can go to a school and take all these classes and have certification papers, but like nothing beats thousands, hundreds or thousands of hours in the work stand. Yeah. And how do you solve this problem? Because every bike mechanic that I know with like one exception is over 50 years old and there's no one half their age to take their place. Yeah. So what happens when all these guys age out, yeah. you know, so there's a shortage in general in the bike industry. COVID's only made that worse. And if you want to do this model, like you got to start with the mechanic 
start with the mechanical help. Everything else you can figure out. Yeah, you got to you got to start with the rare skill that's really difficult to find. Exactly. And in your case, you had that skill. So pro- problem solved. Check. Then you yeah. <laughs> then you move on to the other things. So yep. yeah, that's excellent advice. I mean, in in every business, there's there's a critical skill, and yep. and somebody has to have it, and and hopefully somebody that wants to hang around for a while <laughs> is, is going to have it because you don't want that to be a turnstile and people moving in and out. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about COVID. So yeah. uh, we're recording this on November 17th, I think it is in 2020 and COVID has been around since March. The height of your season is the summer, right? Yep. So we, you know, I would imagine you start picking up in May and start shutting down in September or something like that. Yep. And uh, so how has COVID impacted you? Um, yeah, it's been a, it's <laughs> where to start. Um, it's been really interesting. You know, going into it was pretty terrifying because it's like we're a restaurant, restaurants. At, and we, we usually open the first weekend in May with a big live music event. Right. And because you're a seasonal business, you're like financially coasting on fumes and then you reopen and then things get going again and everything's fine. And you're like, but we're not going to reopen. Um, so what's interesting about our combination is that the bike shop, the bike industry is off the charts right now, um, with new sales, you know, fixing service, everything it's, we were actually ahead of the game going into May. I was busier than I've ever been what I call pre-opening. Like I take on bike repair, um, because I don't need a license to do, you know, I don't need a beer and wine license or a health department license right. to do bike repair. Those don't kick until May. So taking on bike work and we were up we were ahead of the game but it's you know large percentages of small numbers you know once you hit that first weekend you didn't open the restaurant then it's like what are we doing here um and then ultimately uh we opened third weekend in third weekend in may rather than the first um and basically only because i applied for and got approved for a ppp loan um you know i was looking at the risk of i could just with the way the bike shop was going i'm like we can just not open the restaurant this year I can just be like Drew's bike shop this summer, essentially, and uh, the bills will get paid rather than trying to hire on people and throwing food away and whatever. Um, But in the end, we didn't really need it. You know, it gave me the confidence to open and I had staff just waiting for the phone to ring to come back to work. So it it worked exactly how it was supposed to. Um, But there was also more people in the area than there ever are that time of year because every all the second homeowners from downstate left in March and never went back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the time we were, you know, because we opened with just takeout, <clears throat> that was the first thing. And takeout orders were pretty strong. You know, we didn't know. I mean, so like I said earlier in the interview here, so much of our experience is the on-premise, like hang out, meet new people, meet with friends, you know, socialize, which was literally <laughs> against the rules. Yeah, it's prohibited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, for good reason. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't put the bar stools back out until after Labor Day, just because I didn't want to deal with people feeling too comfortable and you know, the mask hanging off the face. I, yeah. I we took it all very seriously. Um, and then as things reopened and things got better, um, you know, we, I'm lucky, be, I'm lucky, uh, but I own a lot of the, the property around here. Like I have plenty of space. Like I could have had a hundred tables, six feet apart if I wanted to, because we have, I own a big empty lot next door. Um, I own the two houses next to here. So we were able to spread people out and people felt safe coming here. Um, we actually got a fair amount of business from people that were in Bolton Landing, or up at a certain brewery that were just not comfortable because it was so crowded and they came here because they could feel comfortable and safe and yeah. they knew we were taking them seriously. Um, 
So in the end, uh, that coupled with one thing we haven't talked about is it's not the hub, <clears throat> but it's directly behind the hub is the hiking trail and mountain bike trail system that we built and uh, I built. Um, and that was a huge boon because that's all you could do this summer. Like outdoor activities were off the charts. You know, people that normally don't hike were out hiking because there's nothing else to do. Yes. Yeah. So that actually fueled business. Um, you know, the, the food side of things was not far off of what it was previous years, but we were open less hours. Um, but the one thing that did really hurt was the alcohol with food sales. Um, cause the bar was at like half mm. of what it normally was, which is tough. Cause that's a very high margin category. Yeah. Um, luckily the bike shop was so busy that it made up for a lot of that. So overall, um, other than every time the phone ringing, me just wondering if it's going to be a contact tracer, or every morning waking up just wondering what the new you know regulation coming down from the state's going to be about what we can and can't do just the pressure and the stress of that like we actually had a totally fine summer well that's great that's great to hear <laughs> you know it yeah. it uh as you think about your business uh you know someone might say that providing all of these things makes the business much more difficult uh and you should focus focus on one thing i mean that's sort of what academics professors talk about uh, but here, this diversity that you've had between yep. the mountain biking, the trails, the restaurant, the bike shop, et cetera, the music, all the space, yep. that's actually helped you in sort of to, yep. a, to adapt to this new environment that we have under COVID and has yep. really be, helped you survive. Yeah, it, yeah, it, survive and th thrive given the conditions. Yep. There's a lot of restaurants. Everyone was doing okay just because there were a lot of people in the area that aren't normally um, – but yeah, instead of just like focusing on surviving, we actually did like very yeah. like all these crazy investments and things that have very questionable returns come pandemic were like really handy to have. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's absolutely. I mean, you're one of the few businesses I've talked to uh, that that has been going through the pandemic here uh, mm -hmm. and and actually, you know, doing quite well. Right. Yeah, you, yeah. you did. You did. A, you did some little changes here and there, but it wasn't like a major pivot for you. Uh, so that's, that's, that's really great to hear. So, uh, what's, what's sort of in the future? How, how do you hope, let's assume we get a vaccine, the COVID thing takes care of itself. Do you, do you envision growing where you are? Do you envision opening another location someplace? Uh, or are you, or are you happy doing what you're doing there? Um, I, <laughs> the focus really will be to trim the sales and just, you know, becoming more, more profitable, you know, um, realistically like i have a good life and live on very not much but you just got to get it to a point where it's making you know what i would call real money yes um which is funny because like it's been a lot of investment you know like sure bought, you know bought the 200 acres behind it and focused a lot of efforts on building a trail system that we don't charge for but it's a draw um and the biggest thing is just you know boosting the existing business to get to a point where everything's a little more comfortable yeah yeah. The only other big moves is like the wall that's behind me that you can see in the thing here. Like I'm taking, it, it forms a room that doesn't need to exist. And like, that's coming out this winter okay. um, to make the coming room bigger because on the live music nights, we'll be packed. We'll be totally packed and people are turning around because they can't get in and that's just turning business away. So I figured one of two things, we get a vaccine, things go back to some degree of normalcy next year. We'll have the space for bands backup plan is <clears throat> part of the only reason that we did so well this summer or did as well as we did this summer was that it was an incredibly dry summer. You know, picnic tables outside for people to eat on are worthless if it's raining. 
Um, and previously, some of our best food business days have been rainy days because it's people in the area where there's nothing else to do. So you just go to, the, you know, you go out to eat. So if, you know, we're still dealing with the same restrictions we have to, I'll have, you know, a couple hundred more square feet to serve people inside in case we don't have, you know, the great yeah. weather this year. Yeah. So this is, this is a seasonal business. Yep. Uh, so how do you, how do you deal with the cash flow challenges that a seasonal business like that brings to a small business owner? I mean, essentially, you know what winter costs, like the costs are very fixed. Like the only variable really is how many times the snowplow comes. <laughs> Other than that, it's like, you know what your mortgage payment is. You know what the insurance payment is. You have no payroll. And that's part of the reason not to be open in the winter. Um, even if we thought we could do it is, you know, I have friends that own restaurants down towards Queensbury and Lake George that, um, you know, they, uh, the best winner ever for them is breaking even. They usually lose 40 or $50,000. I'm like, well, that's, Breaking even is your best case, right? but they have to do it because they can't afford the turnover. Yes. You know, they can't afford to turn, up, turn over their kitchen staff because they're better restaurants. So that's the only reason that they do it. Um, but for me, I was like, okay, so winter can cost X, which is basically mortgage, insurance, a little bit of electricity, you know, not much. Or it can cost that times spoiled food, payroll, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Right. With unknown I mean, revenue, what? right. With unpredictable revenue. Correct. Exactly. So you just have to like, that's what I did when I planned the business model is like, okay, so, you know, when you're figuring out how much to pay for your real estate, you know, you should really, if you're doing the calculations for six months, like double it. Yeah. You're going to have to pay that same amount, even though you're not open in the winter. Yeah. And then, you know, it does get, it's getting easier now, but the first couple of years, it's like, yeah, you're like coasting on fumes. You're just like waiting for May to come. You're like, those first bike repairs that come in are like, as my previous boss used to say, pennies from heaven, you yeah. know, and then you get the first big weekend and the band comes and the money starts flowing in the door and everything just kind of goes from there. Yeah. So Drew, in our conversation, it's very clear that you have a very strong business sense, right? You, you're a planner, you're a detailed person and, and, and you have a, a fundamental set of business skills. Where did you get those from? Um, I mean, I do have a degree in marketing and management from Siena College. Very nice. Um, a, lot of it's, a lot of it's from there. Um, and a lot of it's just working in small businesses my whole life. You know, because there's, I remember I didn't go to college for a few years after high school. Um, and just the work experience I had working for these really small businesses where like the rubber meets the road stuff. And then, you know, sitting in these classes where they're teaching these concepts and like, you know enough to regurgitate the answer on paper to get the test score, but like you don't really understand it. Or um, you know, even stuff like I said mentioned earlier in the podcast about like that microeconomics thing. I remember like struggling as like a whatever freshman sophomore in the class because like partly because the guy that taught it had been doing it for thirty years and was just like a robot. But you know the concept. Sometimes I didn't learn the lesson until like seven years later. Yeah, you know. Well, like the thing happened in my dad's industry or the bike shop industry where I'm like, oh, that's what they mean by. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess the combination of the two, you see, you seeing the experience and then going and learning it in a more traditional setting. Yeah. So one of, one of the questions that uh, budding entrepreneurs often, often debate is uh, should I, should I start my business right out of school or should I go work for somebody for some period of time? and then start my business. Do you have an opinion on that? Uh, absolutely work for somebody else. <laughs> Cause you're getting paid to make your own mistakes essentially, or like learn from others. Like I said, from about probably 16 years old on, I would just have this mental list of like what I saw work well 
yeah. you know, whether it be the way the manager treated people or like some, you know, some kind of business process that didn't make any sense to me that was like, this is wasting time. Why are we doing this? But, you know, just having you, you get that, ex- that practical experience. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I think that's really good advice. I, I'm, I'm a believer in that as well. I, I, I know in my career, I worked for a large company uh, for a period of time and I made a lot of mistakes there the first five years out of graduate school. And, uh, you know, they, it was at their expense, not mine. So that was good. So Drew, we've been at this over 30 minutes. I'd like to, I'd like to wrap it up. Uh, you've been a fabulous guest. I, I really appreciate you taking time, uh, to be on the show. And, um, it's a real interesting story you have here. So thank you very much for being a guest. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Bela, that was an interesting story. And I really kind of view this as a three-part story. One is Drew's own story, right? He kind of went to college late, worked a lot at a lot of small businesses along the way, and then kind of had this vision and this uh, this idea of having a place that was uh, the center of an ecosystem for bicycle, right? Which uh, I thought was a really cool kind of vision. Um, the second was his kind of response to COVID. I think that's a really interesting story, um, how in this very unique business, he had to be creative um, to kind of make it through uh, the pandemic, at least so far. And third, which I think is actually the smallest piece of the story, but really interesting it, to me, is this kind of educational aspect of trying to find a good bike mechanic, that there just isn't a lot there in terms of established programs to build a base of bike mechanics. Biking is huge right now, right? And all these people are going to need their bikes fixed. And how's that going to work? So I think that's an interesting kind of side bit that I want to talk a a little bit about. But, um, you know, first he he found a niche, right? This was a niche and it was a growing niche. And what he did is not selling the bikes, right? But he's he's selling the complimentary good. And that was this place for people to hang out about bikes, to eat and drink and kind of disconnect from the world and and get on their bike and then go ride some more. And I thought that was kind of an interesting kind of idea of building this complimentary product. It made me think of, you know, the people who went to the Alaska gold rush, right, in the 1800s that weren't mining for gold. They, the miners didn't actually make a lot of money overall, but the people who supplied the miners, right, with the, the tools and the food and the beer and the pants and the everything else, right, the blue jeans, right, those were the people that did really well off the off the gold mine in California and Alaska in the 1800s. But this is kind of the same thing as he saw this need and he built a business and it built a really, it built a community around the idea over time. What did you think? Well, you know, it, it struck me as when you think about a lot of recreational activities that we do, like when you, if you, if you ski or you play golf, right, there's, there's sort of a clubhouse, there's a ski lodge, there's a place you go. So you do the, you do the activity, but after the activity, there's sort of a place that you can sort of collect and hang out and, you know, trade stories, uh, have a drink, have some food or whatever. So it's like more of a destination to it. And in, in other sports, uh, whether it be hiking or uh, bikes, bicycling, you know, the destination, the end destination is your car, <laughs> right? And you, and you open the trunk and you take out the cooler and, and, and you have a sandwich and some drink and, you know, you get home and you drive and then you drive home. So here, Drew has sort of taken this from, you know, a, a ski lodge or a golf house or golf club or whatever and sort of said, you know, let's make this try to have a little, give it more of a destination and give it a place where people can hang out. So I thought that was sort of an interesting angle on, on, on what he's doing. Um, and, and so I thought that was really cool. And he's been very successful at it, right? He's been at it for a while now. 
uh, and he's got himself a nice, successful business, which is, you know, a lot of hard work. Um, and he's built, uh, when we talked about it, you know, he acquired some land, some additional land right next to where he has the building. So he's got trails and he's really turned it into a one-stop shop to sign it. Go there, you know, park your car, uh, get some food. If your bike needs parts or fixing, he can do that. Go for your three or four hour ride, come back, have a sandwich and, and go home. And, uh, it's a, it's a very nice place. Yeah. And then, you know, he loves music. So that's a big part of his life. And he figured out a way to build that into his business. So he hosts a lot of music events and it goes nicely with the food and the biking, right. And the kind of the outdoors kind of approach. Um, so that, that was really cool. So, you know, we've talked a little bit during this podcast at a number of times of finding ways to wrap what you enjoy and what you love into your business. And it can be really rewarding. And he's made that, I think, a, an interesting part uh, of the business model. Yeah. And, and where this is located is, is, you know, vacation town. So there's a lot of second summer homes up there. So there's a big influx of people who sort of come there for the summer, but there's not a lot of, of restaurants around. There's not a lot of places to go to listen to music, et cetera. So not only is he sort of catering to the, the people who come there to ride their mountain bikes and to ride their road bikes, but he's also catering to sort of the summer clientele that lives there and providing them for a social outlet and music. And he's taken advantage of both of those and he's mixed them together very well. Yeah. And this, and even the weather, right? So when the weather's nice and people are out biking, that's great. People pass through essentially, but when it's raining, he said he does great business because that's their destination. There's nothing else to do outside and there's not a lot of options in terms of museums and right things like this. But so you go and you go out to eat and that's what you do when the weather's crappy. So I thought that was great. So really some neat insights there on starting a small business intelligence. Yeah. The other thing I thought was cool, and, and, and you, you touched on this in your opening remarks, is, is this notion of, and, and Drew talked about it a little bit differently. He said, you know, there's, when you own a business, there are some skills that are required for the business that are easy to find, and there's other skills that are very hard to find in your business. And in his business, the bike mechanic skill is really difficult. Well, lo and behold, Drew knows how to do that. <laughs> so he does that. But when it comes to running the restaurant piece, you know, the wait staff and the short order cooks, et cetera, uh, that skill he can find in his local region and economy. So that's how he sort of divides up the work. And I, and I thought that was sort of an interesting approach, right, to, to make a, a real good assessment of sort of what's the skill mix where I'm at and, and you know, are there things that I'm going to have to do just because I can't find people to do those things, and, and the ones, the skills that I can find, even though I may know how to do that, I'm not going to do those because I just need to figure out how to divide up the work because I'm not going to work 24 hours a day. Yeah. And he built that into his planning from the beginning. And remember he said, I think, you know, this was the first time in six or seven years that he actually had to do the wrenching on the bikes. Um, but it, yeah, it was great that he planned that into it, that he wasn't going into it, um, with his kind of biggest weakness exposed in the, in that, the HR aspect of, of the business. Um, and that, you know, that really spurs me to think, and, you know, we have a lot of bike shops here in Germany, um, and there's definitely a lot of people who become bike mechanics and it's a honorable profession. I think we probably pay a little more to get our bike service than I did in the States. But, um, but I think the people who work at the bike stores make a decent living and here the weather's not so bad, like in the Adirondacks. So it's a year round thing. And we, we have a lot of, um, it's a, one of the best places to live and be a bicycle commuter, a bike enthusiast in, in all of Europe. Um, so, so, you know, and I, I bike to work as well. 
Uh, and, you know, it is interesting and I, it's really gotten me thinking about how do these people become bike mechanics? And in the U.S., you know, we, we've been talking about this a little bit. There's a real shortage of kind of skill-based work. You know, we have this push that everybody should go to college and everybody should get a college degree. And kind of the vocational aspects of um, education um, are often looked down upon in the U.S. and not funded at the same level. And kind of the jobs that people do aren't always respected, I think, in certain parts of society. And and this is an interesting phenomena. And so I thought that this might be worth talking about a little bit in terms of, um, you know, how do we design a system where we can get people who are looking for meaningful work and jobs that are that they love, right? How do we get those people the skills that they need and get them into these jobs in a way that is affordable and, and effective? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, you know, it's interesting because there, there really is no established infrastructure for helping people to do that. If you want to go to college, we have an established infrastructure to help you get to college, right? We have scholarships. We have mechanisms to get you to do. We have counseling people. We have prep programs. Uh, if you need a little extra help, right? There's thousands of colleges and universities around that are all looking for students, right? And, and you can find your niche. But in the trades, it's, it's, it's much, much more difficult. And we don't have that infrastructure. And, and you know, there are no scholarships, in essence, uh, and, and so it's really interesting to see how, as a society, we've sort of uh, uh, not paid a lot of attention to the trade side, uh, which in many ways is foundational to any society because that work needs to get done. And it reminds me of a, a, a TV show that I used to enjoy watching, which was called Dirty Jobs. And it was hosted by a fellow by the name of Mike Rowe which basically followed people around who did all of these sort of trade jobs. You know, he had iron workers on there. He had, he had people who pick up garbage on there. He had people who clean sewers. He had people who pour concrete, right? A lot of these trades. And, and he made so much money on that show, he actually started a foundation called Micro Works Foundation that provides scholarships for people to go to trade schools. And uh, so, you know, my hat's off to him for doing that. And, and I was just checking out his website and, you know, he's handed out over $5 million in scholarships to over a thousand people, uh, you know, to help fund uh, their education uh, at a various, various different trade schools. And I, and I think uh, as a society, we need to think about that a little bit more. Yeah, this is great. And I'd love to see some evidence and maybe this is going on and I don't see it, but some partnerships with the bike manufacturers and some of the bike retailers and um, and and schools and, and some of the vocational educational infrastructure to do some of this stuff. Yeah, um, I know in the auto mechanic world that there's some of that. You can go and get a two year degree in uh, in fixing cars um, and there's kind of some partnerships with the car industry with the manufacturers yeah. and the big dealers. And, and I don't know if things like that exist um, with the bike makers, but yeah, it's just been a banner year for bikes. You, I, everybody's getting bikes because of COVID. And I got to think that in a year or so, uh, and as people need service on these things, there's going to be a real, a real crunch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's, you know, whether it be bike mechanic or motorcycle mechanic or a boat mechanic, uh, there's a lot of private school, not a lot, but for each of those industries, there's two or three private schools that sort of provide that type of training. Um, but the public education system has, right, has, doesn't provide has basically stayed cost. away from that, right? Yep. Has basically stayed away from that. Uh, and, and which is, you know, sort of an interesting, interesting uh, 
thing to think about. And, and maybe yeah. we need to, we need to reconsider that as, as a, as a country and as a society. Yeah. Well, this is the way you reduce income inequality, right? Is you give people the opportunity who have less ready funds in the moment, right? The opportunity to, to learn and gain skills where they can improve their income, right? And get into the middle class, right? Right. Um, in, in ways that are work that is what I call decent work and, and work that's in a safe workplace and respected. Right? I think, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of rooms to, to grow here uh, yeah. in the coming years. And, and oftentimes in the past, we, ha- we have said that the only way to, to, to have that income equality uh, is through college. And I think, I think we're now reflecting back on that and saying, hmm, maybe that's not true, right? Maybe that's not the only way to do that. There are these other trades and skills that one can have where you can make a very nice living. Uh, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, right? You, you can blaze out on your own. Or you can you can work for a company, but there are probably other paths. There's additional paths uh, besides going to university in order to 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 do that. Yeah, one size does not fit all, and that's a myth. And when you're wearing something that one size fits all, it generally looks bad on you. <laughs> you know, it's too small or too big, right? You got to have multiple paths, right? Um, to what I call decent work, right? Yeah. Excellent. Cool. Well, what do you think? Should we wrap it up? Yeah, I think so, Mike. Okay. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us today. We hope that you found this episode interesting and thought-provoking like we did. Uh, and if you have questions about what we've discussed, please get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and please do subscribe if you haven't already. You know, this is episode 107 of this podcast. Uh, we've been doing it for over two years now. Mike and I really enjoy it. So if you enjoy the podcast, uh, let your friends know. Uh, So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. Sounds great, Bela, from over here in Munster, Germany. I'll see you soon.